Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a podcast series presented each year by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, the Gotham Center's director. And this year, because COVID-19 robbed us of the many spaces normally open to the public each fall by this wonderful event, we decided on something a little different. Because we're all stuck at home instead of traipsing around this city we love, this season of Sights and Sounds focuses on locations that can't be visited anyway. Places that are long gone, that were nonetheless of great importance to New York's history. We're calling it Lost NYC. In this episode, Alexander Manovitz talks about Seneca Village, the neighborhood established by Manhattan's free blacks in 1825, destroyed to make way for Central Park 30 years later. Created by some of the most active congregants of Mother Zion Church and leaders of the African Society for Mutual Relief, Seneca Village is fairly well known today, but mostly for its tragic demise. Indeed, the eviction depositions are some of the only historical records we have of this community. Very few other sources have survived, almost none created by the founders and residents themselves. Here, Manovitz, an editor at the Gotham Center's semi-weekly blog, and the author of a forthcoming history of the rise and fall of Seneca Village, pushes back against this quiet bit of erasure by talking about the vision that gave life to this vibrant experimental community, which before its death counted over 300 residents of not just African, but German and Irish descent, as well as three churches, two cemeteries, and a school. To hear the rest of this series, explore New York City's most important historical sites and organizations, visit us at gothamcenter.org, or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. The next time you visit Central Park, take a walk to Summit Rock, just inside the border of West 83rd Street. At 140 feet, it's the tallest natural elevation in the park, offering a very nice view through the branches of the park's rolling grassy hills and pathways, sculpted by the famous architects Frederick Law Olmsted and Calver Vaux in the 1860s and 1870s. 175 years ago, it would have been a radically different landscape. Facing what most New Yorkers would think of as West, really more like Northwest, you would have seen a relatively rural part of Manhattan with just two major avenues and a few elegant summer homes between you and the Hudson River. To the quote unquote East stood the Croton Receiving Reservoir. Opened in 1842, 10 years after the city's latest cholera outbreak, the reservoir contained water from the Hudson River Valley between 79th and 87th Street. And down the hill to the North stood perhaps the most surprising view a neat settlement in a mostly recognizable grid pattern, hardly implemented this far north at the time, created in 1825 by a group of free African-Americans who came together to establish an experimental political community dedicated to personal and racial advancement. By the late 1850s, the community boasted over 300 residents of African, German, and Irish descent, three churches, two cemeteries, and a school. This was Seneca Village, the neighborhood displaced and destroyed to build Central Park. Imagine people like the Williams family, with children and grandparents coming in and out of one and two story wood framed houses. Imagine Louisa Peace, a black woman tending a garden behind her home, setting aside some vegetables for the family's kitchen and preparing the rest of the harvest for market. And imagine William Wilson, a young black man welcoming a multiracial group of worshipers at the local church. I'll get to that bit of the story later. But first, let's talk about the foundations of Seneca Village and the world residents build long before wealthy real estate prospectors, international merchants, 
and urban reformers ever even imagined Central Park. The village was swallowed up by a history of urban growth that still buries it today. But starting where its founders started, opens our eyes to a set of bold social and political commitments that remain buried too. Seneca Villagers founders were active members of important black social and political organizations like the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church and the New York African Society for Mutual Relief, both of which you can learn more about in other podcasts the Gotham Center has arranged for this year's special edition of Sights and Sounds. At a time when slavery was still legal in New York state and in most of the nation, these groups actively promoted a form of black freedom that meant more than emancipation from bondage. At the heart of their approach were ideas of economic opportunity, stability, self-determination, education, and participation in public life. In other words, the cause of both personal and racial advancement. When Andrew Williams, Epiphany Davis, Charles Treadwell, James Newton, and other founding members first purchased this bit of land in Upper Manhattan from John and Elizabeth Whitehead in 1825, they were putting the most innovative version of these ideas into practice. The Whiteheads were real estate prospectors who had only recently acquired a large tract of land that they quickly split up to sell as individual lots. What the Whitehead saw as an opportunity for quick profit, however, Seneca villagers turned into a community built to last. Seneca villagers met with early success. Residents had higher rates of voting rights, literacy, land ownership, and income than their counterparts in New York City's other predominantly black neighborhoods. They managed their own religious institutions, cultivated gardens, and oversaw an unusually prosperous community. Some rights, like suffrage and home ownership, were restricted to property residents, but the community offered boarders alike a respite from the health risks and slave catchers that permeated Lower Manhattan as well as the opportunity to participate in new modes of racial and urban activism. All benefited from what the community had to offer, even though only some had access to its full potential. One resident, Sarah Wilson, provides an important and unexpected window into Seneca village life. Born in the slave state of Virginia 20 years after the American Revolution, Wilson was buried in a mass grave at St. Michael Cemetery in Queens, New York, only five years before Confederate cannons opened on Fort Sumter. She owned her own home and land in Seneca Village in a time when women had few legal rights to independent property ownership and suffrage for African-American men required land. As a woman, no amount of land would have qualified her to vote, but she used her land to wield power and influence in other ways as she helped Seneca Village grow. Sarah Wilson was a leader in All Angels Church. William Wilson, who was likely her adult son, lived in Seneca Village and worked for All Angels, the multiracial church I mentioned earlier. Sarah Wilson also adopted Catherine Treadwell, the young daughter of a deceased community founder, Charles Treadwell, who was also a trustee of a different church in the neighborhood, the AME Zion. Sarah Wilson was a woman who defied expectations and neat categorization. And that makes her a perfect example of what community meant in Seneca Village and what the daily work of building it looked like. When the city finally decided to build Central Park, they began the long litigious process of seizing hundreds of acres of land from all sorts of New Yorkers, including those in Seneca Village. In their attempt to preserve the community, or at least get a fairer payout from the city, many land-owning Seneca Villagers filed court depositions. It was a heavily mediated process, but the seven bound volumes of delicate blue court papers are the closest thing we have to a documentary record of Seneca Village from inside the community and in their own voice. Similar depositions from nearby real estate investors turned immediately and almost exclusively to market justifications. 
Seneca villagers had a different relationship to property, however, and different hopes for the community they built there. In the face of eviction, plus a citywide propaganda campaign that painted their settlement as a diseased shantytown comprised of criminal vagrants, Seneca villagers repeatedly emphasized themes of permanence, community, personal connection to place, and even principles of justice, all of which they saw as compatible, but not equivalent, with the market language that stood at the heart of other petitions. Some were able to get higher sums from the city, but every resident in the area that became Central Park was evicted by 1857, and they scattered. Many in Seneca Village moved to nearby Yorkville, which also had a significant Black population, some of whom even helped reestablish an uptown branch of the African Union Church, an all-Black church with its main congregation in Lower Manhattan. Others moved farther east to Queens and Brooklyn and Long Island. Most still have not been found. While reading for a seminar in my first year of graduate school, I came across just a few sentences about Seneca Village in Leslie Harris's amazing book, In the Shadow of Slavery, about Black New Yorkers before 1863. I added it to a running list of possible dissertation topics, and one year later tested the waters in a semester-long research project. I've been working on that project ever since. I read everything I could, but there was very little. Almost every footnote kept pointing me back to the same few scholarly works and archival sources. I began stitching together discrete pieces of census, tax, property records for a more full-bodied and complex story about the political activists behind the community, wondering all along how many other researchers had gotten this far and abandoned hope. It seemed like an impossible task. After many nights coming home from a long day in the archives only to exclaim in frustration, why can't I find anything on Seneca Village? I realized that was actually itself a very good question. Why couldn't I find anything about Seneca Village? Remember, I mentioned earlier that the eviction depositions are some of the only historical records that we have of Seneca Village. Very few sources have survived, almost none created by the founders and residents themselves, and the overwhelming majority focused on the making of Central Park. That presents two problems. First, it created, preserved, and has made a negative vision of Seneca Village the most easily accessible one. The few sources that do exist in significant numbers, government reports and newspaper stories, were produced as part of the attempt to destroy Seneca Village, first in the imagination of New Yorkers and then physically. As these are the easiest sources to find, they have shaped the narrative most. But if the first problem comes from the narratives of the past, the second comes from the present. Central Park looms so large in the culture and geography of New York City that it's hard for us to imagine a time before it or without it. Its status as a global icon makes it easy to assume that Seneca Village only exists and only matters as a footnote in its prehistory, an obstacle cleared for the inevitable main and much beloved event. If you've heard or read anything about Seneca Village before today, there is a good chance it was described as, quote, the African-American community destroyed to build Central Park, or some variant thereof. This teaches us to discount their story before we even know it. But the difficulty of finding their story only proves the importance of telling it. There's a long history of urban redevelopment and a lot of differences between Seneca Village and today, but the tactics and tensions on display now unmistakably echo those experienced by Central Park's advocates and defenders of Seneca Village in the antebellum period. The nuances and stakes have changed, from Jacob Reese's foul core and slum clearance to the blight and renewal of the Cold War era and the urban frontier and gentrification of today. But the debate over land use continues. Today, as the poor and working class, immigrants and people of color throughout the nation 
navigate changing urban environments in the face of relentless waves of displacement and gentrification, the story of Seneca Village is more relevant and recognizable than ever. It feels commonplace, but it's not natural. As long as we assume it is, we reinforce a narrative of supposedly linear progress that has not been earned. Seneca Village helps us understand how America learned to build cities today. And it can help us ask better questions about who benefits, who pays the price, and who has the right to imagine a new world for themselves and their communities. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available wherever you get podcasts. And visit us at GothamCenter.org to learn more about all of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for this season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann for Citizen Racecar. Special thanks to Dina Ecker and Jessica George for their help in the making of this episode. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Be safe, everyone.